0: And many parents would tell you if their, ch- if their kids came of age in the pandemic, they had never physically set foot in the school. They had only sent their child to the school in a mask for the first couple of years. So it's understandable that there's just a lot less social fabric to draw on when a child is missing to say, hey, can you get her here? Every day I notice she's missed 10 days already this year. And instructionally, I think things got stripped down to the basics.
1: I'm Jill Shaw, here with Ross Wilson, and this is Deep Dives, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. School districts across the country are facing similar challenges, and Deep Dives aims to unpack why things are the way they are and what it will take to create change.
2: In each episode, we bring together national experts for a roundtable discussion about key issues in our schools. Chronic absenteeism rates in every state are skyrocketing, continuing a trend that started before the pandemic and leading the White House to double down on efforts to get kids back to school.
1: Today, we're diving into this topic with two incredible leaders. Tim Daly is the CEO of Ed Navigator, a national organization that empowers families to access high-quality education. Tim recently authored a brilliant three-part series on what's behind the rise in absenteeism and how to address it, which is linked in our blog. And we're joined by Allison Remick, head of Boston Day and Evening Academy, which supports chronically absent students across Boston and helps them re-engage through competency-based learning, mentorship, and support. All right, so Allison and Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to talk about chronic absenteeism, but maybe why don't we start by defining it. Tim, do you want to take a stab at what chronic absenteeism is?
0: Yeah, chronic absenteeism is missing 10% or more of the school days in a given year. Most schools uh, nationwide have 180 school days, so generally chronic absenteeism is 18 absences per year.
1: And why does education today think that chronic absenteeism is a problem? What is the result of it?
0: Going back a couple of decades, it's been one of the most consistent predictors of student learning and success and also long-term performance. So, for example, kids who miss a lot of days and are chronically absent in elementary school miss even more days in middle school, and they tend to be the most likely to drop out of high school. So one of the reasons that there's been a lot of research around chronic absenteeism and a lot of concern about it, even well before the pandemic, is it's probably... The number one thing that you can measure for every student consistently across schools that clearly maps to things that we care about.
2: How bad is it currently with chronic absenteeism? Both, I mean, I would say Massachusetts, but across the country.
0: So the the AP put out a really nice article at the end of the summer that showed that all 50 states have had an increase in chronic absenteeism since the beginning of the pandemic. So there are some differences from state to state, but there are far more kids who are chronically absent today than there were before the pandemic. And most of the increases are more significant in urban schools and schools that serve low income kids. So for folks that are concerned about educational opportunity and having more equitable educational opportunities for low-income kids, it's a big alarm.
1: So Allison, you run a school here in Boston, Boston Day and Evening Academy. Can you talk a little bit first about that school and just kind of help us understand what the focus of that school is and the students that you serve, and then talk about chronic absenteeism and how much are you seeing? Does it feel or look any different today than it did pre-pandemic?
3: Sure. So Boston Day and Evening is a alternative high school in the city of Boston in Roxbury. We've been around for 25 years serving students that haven't been served well by our traditional schools. All of them come with absentee issues. So we are well versed in chronic absenteeism. Their reasons behind it are vast. It's everything from housing and food insecurity to mental health and to even what Tim references in his article, students that The difference between wanting and can't go to school, there are just some students that have low motivation and there's no accountability for them to come to school. I would say pre-COVID, we had about a 60% attendance rate, which is about average for an alternative school. During COVID, it dipped down to 40%. And all classes were online? Yeah, even after COVID. It's a slow, slow recovery, I think, as as you're mentioning. So we're Last year, we were about 40%. So that's two years after COVID. Okay, right. Um And has a huge impact on student morale, staff morale.
1: How do kids react to kids who are chronically absent? Or are they all chronically absent but at different times? And
3: that's where you get to the 40%. So when I was a teacher, we had a philosophy that you'd get half your students one day and another half the second day. And that was your teaching style. And you had to figure out strategies to work with that revolving door, as we would call it. I think as a result of COVID and this decline that hasn't come back, I think it's tough on students. I think they walk into classrooms, there's only a few kids in there, and it, they lose motivation to keep on coming. Yeah.
2: And Allison, do you, like, other reasons when you talk to students, like, what are the reasons you're coming across for why they're not coming to school?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a whole host. And you know, again, Tim. That's what I appreciate about some of your recommendations because we did try them this fall, and they are working. There are a group of students that, I mean, school is boring. I mean, you have some really great co- quotes in there. Why should we go to school? Yeah. And I don't think we've fixed that. I don't. I don't think we've we as a system, as a country, have fixed. Especially high school. It is not engaging for our young adults. So a lot of them don't see the relevance. They don't see the connection to their lives. The, the culture of the schools is not warm and inviting. Many of them come to us and have mental health issues that were never addressed. Schools couldn't address them because they didn't have the resources. And I think also we are seeing where parents are also kind of not having that accountability to send their student to school.
1: Right. So you're, you're looking at it on a day-to-day basis. Tim, you looked at it for the article you wrote on a macro level. And In addition to the things that Allison's talking about that we can dig into, was there any correlation to across the country after COVID or during COVID, which states went back to school earlier? And we pulled out this chart that I think was in the New York Times, which showed that, you know, California has much more chronic absenteeism now than like Arkansas, which Arkansas, I'm guessing, went back to school very early. And so is there correlation there?
0: I think the answer is yes. And this probably is an example of one of the small pieces of the puzzle uh, factors because there's so many things at play here. And I think this is one of them. It doesn't explain all of it. So for example, one of the things that, that happened during the return to school is that Texas and Florida were very aggressive at reopening schools. They did it far earlier than other places. And there was a lot of kind of political element to that. When their test scores came out last year, it was very surprising that their students didn't fare any better than students in other states that where the schools were closed longer, Hmm. at least on the national tests. Everyone thought that that potentially those states would zoom past everyone else. And generally, they actually do fairly well on NAEP, but they didn't get as much of a benefit as folks thought that they might get. There's a little bit of research at the state level that suggests that actually there is more of a connection between when folks reopen and and what their test scores were. But one of the things that was happening beneath the surface was that just reopening schools didn't mean that kids were going. And if you looked at Florida and Texas, their chronic absenteeism, rates were very high. So on the surface it appeared all the kids are back, but the kids weren't going and I think that um is why there is some connection here, but it's not a uniform connection because if all the kids in those places were not only allowed to go back to school but they were going to school that entire time, you would see the learning outcomes more pronounced. And I think that you would see a, a even stronger connection than you already see between that and chronic absenteeism today. But I do think essentially, and Allison, I think was making this point, going to school is a social activity and it is a social norm. So the more schools, eroded that social norm by saying you can't come to school or it's not important that we reopen school it definitely sent a message to parents and informally when you talk to parents they all bring it up so mm-hmm. i don't know that, that mm-hmm. it's, it's one thing to see it in a survey or to see it in data but in casual conversation it just used to be considered a bigger deal to keep your child home and now parents will tell you, I know it's not such a big deal because they kept telling me to keep my child home for all these other reasons. Very yeah, specific. I mean, let's yeah. get into is
2: it a big deal or not a big deal. Like, Have you seen mm-hmm. a correlation between with lower performance and higher rates of absenteeism?
0: At the student level? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That relationship existed before and just got more pronounced.
1: Do you see it at school given you're dealing already with chronically absent students who are coming to you for a different kind of experience?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Attendance drives academic outcomes. That's how we try to encourage students to come. The pandemic also exposed us or allowed us to see, I think a couple things happened during the pandemic. Parents were able to look into the classrooms and see what teaching and learning looked like. Teaching and learning during the pandemic was not the best of our teachers. When we returned from the pandemic, our teaching and learning didn't go back to the creative, critical thinking, exciting, social style of teaching that gets kids to come to school. Why not? Well, I think so everyone was really worried about learning loss. And so the quick band-aid to learning loss is adopt curriculum mm-hmm. and implement curriculum and to me as a teacher that's probably one of the most boring ways to teach like grill and drill basically like let's we got to just fill them back up yeah. with yeah. the stuff that they missed well,
1: what so do you, what,
2: what do you mean when you say adopt curriculum uh, that you didn't have a curriculum before
3: So I think, no, I think during the pandemic, people really reduced their teaching and learning. I think there was always some curriculum, but I think they reduced it to not student discourse, investigative assignments, critical thinking, project-based learning, experiential learning, like all the things. Like when you think about good teaching and learning, you want students to be at their learning edge. You want them to be excited. You want them to have to be at school to be in community, a community of learners, We haven't brought that back. And instead, we have brought back kind of a set curriculum, not super creative, maybe not time to make it creative. And so that's where I think the students are definitely saying, this is an interesting," And I can do it online, as Tim was saying. Like, if I can do it all online, why do I need to be in school? And so if we can invest in the teaching and learning that we know, like when young kids And I'm really speaking at the high school level. Yeah. But when we think about what good teaching and learning looks like at a high school level, there has to be a reason for these young adults to come into the building. Do you have a point of view,
1: Tim? In elementary school, is the same thing happening?
0: No, it rose everywhere. High school has always been higher, so it remains mm-hmm. higher. But uh, one of the most intriguing trends was that even for young kids, they started missing a lot more school. And in terms of how we think about what's driving it, they're not making the decision about whether they go to school or not. High school kids often are. So right. the fact that even the very young kids are going far less often is interesting.
2: You're getting emotional. I am You're getting
0: emotional. <laughs> i just thinking about, about it. Emo- Let's <laughs> talk about your emotions. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> The instructional trends, I think, were the same in elementary, though. It was harder to do things that were fun. For a couple of years, there were no field trips. There were no after-school clubs. Parents couldn't come into the school for parent-teacher conferences. They couldn't come to school to see singing performances or to read to the class because uh, outside visitors were limited. So everyone's connection to the school was significantly limited. And many parents would tell you if if their kids came of age in the pandemic, they had never physically set foot in the school. They had only sent their child to the school- in a mask for the first couple of years. So it's understandable that there's just a lot less social fabric to draw on when a child is missing to say, hey, can you get her here? Every day I notice she's missed 10 days already this year. And instructionally, I think things got stripped down to the basics. You couldn't do all of the things that you had done before for a whole host of reasons. And I think it just became a lot less essential to be there, a lot less exciting.
1: Well, a lot less of an anchoring force. And I don't know, if is it motivation? Is it expectations? Is it just exhaustion. Why has teaching shifted and not shifted back now that the broad expectation is that kids should be back in school?
3: I mean, I think it is shifting back. Okay. Um, I think it's slowly shifting back. I think as the students are returning, and so this fall, we are seeing the students return. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm walking around the classrooms, we're seeing more students in there and teachers now having to remember all those instructional moves that they've had to use when you have a lot of students in front of you. And it's been an interesting conversation because they have it. They have all those tools. They just haven't had to tap them. And what about from
1: a social fabric perspective? At some point, does it need to be addressed with policy? Do school districts need to be reminded that they are anchoring forces in communities?
2: Or is this a group of students that were impacted by a pandemic by being home and we just wait? We wait it out. And students, you know, we changed the expectation for new students and maybe teachers. I do want to throw, though, a wrinkle in this, which is that we're talking specifically
0: about the changes that began in March of 2020. But all of these trends predate that. The peak in student achievement and the peak in student attendance is about 10 years in the rear view right now. Most places peaked between 2012 and 2014. At that time, a district like Oakland, which is now has just astronomical levels of student absenteeism, 60 and 70% of their kids chronically absent. Mm -hmm. Back then, it was 11 and a half. Mm -hmm. Same district, same kids. So the trends that we have seen of achievement declining, particularly for low performers, of achievement gaps getting bigger, and chronic absenteeism going up, that was already happening. So there's been a rollback in the level of thriving for low-income kids that was in process. The pandemic significantly exacerbated it. But these instructional issues that underlie it, were beginning to emerge. We just didn't see enough data points yet to conclude that this was Hmm. a full pattern. And the the pandemic obviously made it much worse. So one of the other things that we need to ask is, what were the things that were happening before that combined with these things that happened during the pandemic? And I, I agree with Allison that I think... You're starting to see more attentiveness and correction to both of them because I think there were some un- instructional things that were happening even before, and there were some things that were instructional that were happening in the pandemic. And I do think there are some encouraging signs that folks are improving those things.
1: But does that solve the riddle? Because I, I would think, like when you're talking about trajectories, okay, well that also is correlative to – the rise in mental mm-hmm. health, mm-hmm. M- mental illness, mm-hmm. and yep. th- social media. And adoption
0: it, of screens in schools.
1: Right, adoption mm-hmm. of screens in schools. Actually, yeah. like, pervasive introduction for Correct. a little while there Aggressive, of yes. iPads everywhere. Yeah. Who's noticing that all of these trends are rising, to get, whether they're causal or not?
0: I mean, listen, until a few months ago, nobody seemed to be noticing that we had an epidemic of chronic absenteeism. Like the the last couple of, it took a long time before there were national headlines. And now it's become a little bit of a feeding frenzy. There are a lot of op-ed columns and other things that are drawing attention to this. But one of the other questions is, why did it take us so long to realize our kids weren't coming back to school?
3: I think we knew they weren't coming back to school. I I think it's, it's been hard to solve this problem. Each year after covid you walk into your fall hopeful that it's going to be different. Yeah. Changing your instructional practice a little bit, changing, but I mean just think about each year, like year 1 we were still wearing masks right. and it was hybrid and year 2, you know, it it still didn't feel safe and Tim you listed a whole bunch of reasons we had to hold kids home right. for 10 days. You know, right. there's all sorts of practices. So as someone who's worked with chronic absentee students, like, it is tough. Like, this is the hardest work, and it is complex, and it is one solution does not solve it. I think people recognize kids were not coming back. I think they just didn't have an answer. And I, the one thing that I think is really interesting that I found, and this caused us to shift our attendance practices, is that you mentioned the importance of, Numbers of days missed, and then nudge letters to mm. families. And what is happening is that a lot of our student information systems, where we track our attendance, don't have interfaces on them that make nudge letters easy, that don't make reporting easy, that don't make tracking easy. PowerSchool is the one we use. Talk. Just say, what is a nudge letter? Just so. So, you understand just it. reaching out to families, and your child isn't here, and your child isn't here for X amount of days. Student information systems are now evolving to address that we need more outreach to our families. They need to understand the context of it. It needs to be in different languages. And now we can track. What we're doing is we are tracking daily attendance and doing interventions timely, not waiting because the reports took yeah. so long to run. That's
2: great. So, so Allison, just on these on these, this notion of a nudge letter, basically these are letters or messages that go to families – And they state, do you know your child has been absent this many days? And do you know that absenteeism has this impact on your child's performance, right? Or, or in in fact, saying your child may be at risk of failure of the course if they don't come to school. Is that, is that?
3: It is. And I I will just say we haven't bought that interface yet because we are in the process of upgrading our system. We are doing it manually, which is incredibly time-consuming and human-consuming. So
1: comprehensively, Mm Why aren't districts adopting that or are they mm-hmm. adopting that more comprehensively as this is getting elevated to you know a, a policy sort of level, I mean especially since there was all mm-hmm. of this ESSER mm-hmm. funding sent out to districts? I think that's the a great
0: question. This is what the money was for. Yeah. Right? it was to procure things that schools need, especially at the central level and, and in the short term money is no object. The research behind those types of nudges is extremely strong. They, they don't completely eliminate absenteeism. They make a dent in it, right. but they're very affordable and easy to do. And they're based on this idea that parents have uh, an absence here and an absence there, and they don't internalize how often their kids have been absent. And they may not realize that it's unusual to be absent 20 times a year. They may mm. think that all kids are absent 20 times a year because it's just sort of things that, that come up. And so these letters help give information to parents and also kind of redirect them towards more regular attendance they are pretty widely, you know, proven, and there are multiple options for vendors. So this isn't something that districts would need to to build completely on their own, but they are not that widely used. It's often school leaders or teachers individually that are having to do these things mm-hmm. on their own. But you
1: can understand why the school leader is incentivized to do it. Yep. You're in your school and you can see the effects. I mean, is this not the same incentive for a superintendent? It's even bigger because yeah.
0: they get paid for every attendance day. So in many states, oh, you're your funding is completely dependent on the number of days kids attend. Every day a child shows up, you get more money in your account. They have every reason to do it.
1: Hmm. At the district level.
0: At the district level.
1: So why do you think, why didn't that incentive work then?
0: I actually think some of what sits beneath all of this is this assumption that things would just bounce back to normal. I think that people wanted to be patient and assume that there might be things going on in the home that you didn't know about that were were preventing folks from sending kids to school. And one of them was, especially if there was a health risk, you didn't want to push a family to send a child who then got sick and brought that sickness home to somebody who was much more vulnerable.
2: Cut. try something? I'm a 10th grade student. And, you know, my teacher is actually really great because during the pandemic, they started posting all of their work on Google Mm -hmm, Classroom. mm -hmm. So on Mondays, every Monday, I get a full playlist of what we're going to cover in the class for the week. I get my assignments. I get all the links. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty great. I know exactly what to do. And you know what? I really don't have like that great of a social network at school. I do most of my social networking online and I use social media to do that. And so why would I go to school? If I have the playlist, I know what the teacher is expecting. I could then connect with my friends later on at night and just make sure I didn't miss on anything in the classwork via social media. And school's kind of boring cuz you mm-hmm. you already post all the work, so like why do I need yeah. to go see the work and I can play video games most of the day. Is that a reason for chronic absenteeism? I mean so yes, my parent can get a nudge, right? And say, "Hey, mm-hmm. Ross should go to school, but I'm having a great time at home and I and I'm actually doing fine. I'm getting, you know, Cs and Bs. What's the problem?
0: This is a whole strand of it that I think we that's worth engaging with because there are kids who academically are doing fine. They're independent, they're self-driven, they're pretty high performing. So, they're happy to get the playlist. They're going to do all of the work whether they're in school or not in school and they're going to turn everything in. So, I think it probably is the the main reason to get them back into school wouldn't be that they're not learning anything. And that is something that comes up with parents a lot too. Why can't we take a family vacation in the middle of January? My child's going to miss a week of school, but it's so easy to make it up. And it's so much cheaper to take that vacation in January than to take it like during the holidays when everybody else is doing it. I think though, it, it seems promising And there are definitely places where you hear folks speak positively of it. I do think we should be careful because we we don't know is whether academics were the main thing that they were getting out of school. And we also have these enormous spikes in social isolation, depression, and other mental health issues. And I don't know whether those things are exacerbated by kids socializing mainly through screens and being away from schools. And another trend that really caught my attention is fewer kids playing sports, which also is very unhealthy for them. And sports are one of the main reasons kids come to school so when they're involved in teams Mm -hmm. even kids who otherwise would be a little bit reluctant to come come just because their teammates are there or they can't participate and kids who are taking the option where they essentially disengage and participate mainly online are much more likely to participate in, in sports and clubs we need to be careful about condemning that approach completely from the outset, because it may work for some kids and we may want to get more flexibility. But I'm also a little bit cautious about saying that's the new thing and that any kid who doesn't want to go to high school, we should just automatically say, great, do it online. Kids are having very different responses based on their circumstances to the exact same situation, like as in my school's closed for COVID. Some of them had a really mild response to that and some, it seemed to be really detrimental. So I'm curious about it, but I feel like there's there's a lot we don't know.
1: But I would think you would have some insights on this, Allison, because part of your value proposition to students is that you understand each one of them uniquely and are creating an educational experience that allows them to move on to whatever they deem the next thing, college or certification or a job. How do you respond to that or how do you think about that?
3: Yeah, no, I think, I think Tim is spot on and it's a great question. Question, Ross. I think when you have a school like Boston Day and Evening that's an alternative school, we can take on some of those students because I would agree that if they're making academic progress and they're working and they're, you know, taking care of their child and but they're still making academic progress and they're doing at a high school level, then that's the flexibility we need to give some of our young adults. And that's Mm -hmm. why we have alternative schools and our data can look a little bit different in terms of absorbing some of that low attending student. Mm. But I think having that flexibility for young adults who have a host of challenges, we need to be able to do that. I also, I would agree with Tim, like there is something to be said about the social aspect of learning Mm. that we don't want to lose. And I know that some students, I've had conversations with teachers where they themselves are introverts. So why, you know, like pushing kids to have student discourse, but you know, I think our world is going to be a better world when we have more diverse thinking happening in a social environment. So that would be my only push against a parent that would say, my son or daughter is doing well. I want to keep them home.
2: There seems to be a couple different arguments here for getting kids back in school. There's one argument that's saying to families and to educators, hey, make them go back, Mm -hmm. right? Like, let's make some consequences here. Let's say this is a different paradigm. This is post-pandemic. Let's make them go back. Let's make them sit in those classrooms. You know, my my parents would have said, go to school. I said, well, I'm bored. I don't want to go to school. Hey, Ross, you're going to school. There's not a choice. Like, get out of the house and go to school, right? So there's that sort of like, just Mm -hmm. get them out of the house and make them go to school. Then there's sort of the other paradigm, which is like, hey, maybe we've, we're have we seeing something different here, right? Maybe mm-hmm. over the last 10 years, we're starting to see mm-hmm. that we got to think mm-hmm. about education a little bit differently. And we got to engage our students. And our, by the way, our students are telling us something, right? They're telling us, hey, we don't really like what's going on in our classrooms and our schools. We don't like going to school. Maybe we, re- we should respond to that with rethinking what we're doing in our classrooms and our schools writ large, create more flexibility, use more technology, do things that are engaging to our students. How do you guys think about those two sort of paradigms of like just make them go back mm-hmm. or let's completely rethink k-12 education and figure this out how to re-engage
0: so my impulse on this is to sequence it because I'm scared and maybe skeptical to jump into the reimagination part before we get the basics right again because I I still feel like this return to the the practices, where families feel connected to their school and teachers feel like the instructional programs are strong and kids are attending. I think we get the basics right, Mm -hmm. but I think we don't lose this conversation about what did we learn from the pandemic that we can leverage for the future. Because there are so many things that we learned that can be more flexible. We can differentiate instruction for kids with different needs. I think that we can cater to student interests in totally different ways but i do worry that we've just had this sense of being so overwhelmed and school districts have talked about how difficult it is to staff and how difficult it's been even to get to this point that i worry about introducing too much of a tornado around that and maybe it's maybe i'm too incrementalist about this but i think it's let's do the first things first and once we get to a point where we've reestablished baselines where we have kids in almost every grade performing at pre-pandemic levels, and we have pre-pandemic levels of absenteeism, and we have pre-pandemic levels of teacher vacancy, then I think, great, let's start thinking about the bigger picture.
1: Well, yeah, but except for doesn't that assume that we're going to we're going to get back to the number of teachers that we need, that they're all going to be certified and beyond proficient, that they're going to be excellent teachers who are going to create these environments that Allison's talking about, where you foster a love of learning and a collaboration and a conversation in, in a social space. Right. with you. And doesn't it also assume that mental illness rates don't continue to rise? Can we, as a country, as a district, as a school, fight all of these sorts of rising tides that are right. a little fierce? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way to, like, regain normalcy the way that you're talking about so that you can kind of stepping stone your way into it? Or do you have to say, oh, geez, this is the new
3: normal, and therefore the new normal needs a whole new set of solutions? I would say we can and need to do both. Mm -hmm. I think it's your carrot and your stick, right? I think we need a stricter attendance policy. I'm not a fan of including it in grades, but we do need to set a higher expectation for students to be there call the parents in, talk about what's going on, finding out from that conversation if there's something more underlying the attendance. And at the same time, we have to change the school culture and climate, mm. making it safe, the social media that's happening, the bathrooms that are happening. It needs to be warm and inviting in terms of language and words coming from the humans in that building. Yeah, And the teaching practice has to be more engaging. It's hard to tell a student Just come to school. Yeah, totally. It's hard to tell a parent, too. Just
1: send your child to school if the parent's sitting at home with a child who is suffering.
0: You know what's an interesting example, though, I think, of of this, whether you're trying to, like, hold back the future or embrace it, is the evolving policies towards mobile phones in schools. Mm -hmm. So 15 years ago, there were school districts that said, you can't have it in school. It's got to be in your locker. This is a big fight that Michael Bloomberg used to have as mayor, which the students— Found a million ways to have their cell phones with them. And eventually, this school's just stopped trying to police it. So now, in many classrooms, you have a student that's got their mobile phone, which is a personal device, and potentially a tablet that they can do various sorts of things on. And for a while, I think it was conventional wisdom that you just kind of got to go with it. Like, be, like in, embrace the online world, kids multitask. You're never going to be able to police this out of existence. Mm. But Like, sort of unexpectedly after the pandemic, there's been a lot of research that comes out that says mobile phones are terrible for kids in school. They're distracting, they learn less, they're on social media more, and that having kids turn their phones in when they go into the classrooms is one of the single best things you can do. And it sounds like the United Kingdom is considering a national policy on this. So one of the things that I do think is interesting is that there's a mix, I think, of, of questions on the horizon of the degree to which you reinvent versus the degree to which you rethink some of the things that have sort of been allowed in from a technology perspective or an innovation perspective that we have second thoughts about. And it's, it's, you can't have that conversation without talking about social media. Everyone thought social media was very exciting mm-hmm. and a great way mm-hmm. to make friends a decade mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. And most parents now think it is a toxic yeah. horror show. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely.
1: Well, can you also talk about, Tim, you mentioned that schools should take the example of employers trying to get their employees back to work. What lessons do you think there are to be learned in the experience that employers had?
0: One is that people don't really want to come. You know, like if they're given the option to stay home or to come where you want them to come, they're not that excited about coming, even with like pretty significant – incentives, and that you can't do this with little half measures, like saying you should come into the office two days a week, but we're not really going to police it. And everybody has a different sort of expectation around it. You're going to with nobody there. Yeah, And I do think that the employers have said that eventually you just have to make it a norm. So it's reestablishing a social norm that you have to be here. And we're going to look at whether you badge in and badge out, and mm-hmm. we're going to follow up on that. I think schools are, seem to be arriving at a fairly similar place, which is that sort of become less and less accommodating it doesn't mean that you have to be totally draconian because many of those employers are not saying five days a week all day doesn't matter what your commute are generally they are settling on something that is permanent but different in a permanent way than than what they did before so i do think some of those things are interesting but they also struggled with productivity and creativity and i think we should pay attention to those lessons too that they're they don't have the same collegiality they don't have the same level of innovation. And now what you're hearing, too, which is important for us to think about kids, the, we now have college graduates coming into the workforce who were in college during mm-hmm. the pandemic that are mm-hmm. now in entry-level jobs. Yeah. And the feedback from employers is awful. They don't know how to work in groups because they didn't do it mm-hmm. in college. They mm-hmm. also are used to being accommodated and excused from everything because they had an extension on every paper not in college. Not And that they now feel like they have to retrain them. They didn't do any internships in college where they learned how to interact in an office environment with college. You know, they, mm-hmm. they're bringing their dog to work in a place that's not pet-friendly. They're,
2: right. they're or sorts do of, the employers need to change? Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe. The, <laughs> well, and,
1: well, there there you have mass. an outcome, right? Because yeah. because they're going to they're gonna, gonna steer their businesses <laughs> – yeah. To what drives the most revenue and the most mm-hmm. profits? Like you have an outcome. Change. So oh, what? But it doesn't. <laughs> oh no. But <laughs> to your place. point, why? So then, what should edu? <laughs> do educators need to kind of reassert or redefine outcomes? Is Grades are expectation. Our test scores are expectation. Is college matriculation our right. expectation? Is viable employees our expectation? Are we? Do we have any way to measure any of those things?
0: Like I think there's been an accountability regime that's been fairly narrow, and it's it's due for reconsideration. The last time mm-hmm. the federal law on education was reauthorized was 2015. It's been eight years and a pandemic, mm. and that conversation should have started by now. But you may have noticed that conversations in Washington are not starting or getting finished all that often.
3: You know, it it makes me think of, and and again, I think it's interesting that a lot of your data is speaking pre-COVID around how schools had to be reimagined back then. But even to your point, Jill, like when we think about schools, we think about skills and dispositions. And so we might right now just be focusing on skills and academic outcomes and not the dispositions, the habits of mind, the habits of success that we for you know, years ago, looked at those characteristics as what defined a graduate as being successful in post-secondary learning. And so we may be focusing, and I, I do feel like districts are focusing on this learning loss, and it's all about skill and content and less on those habits and characteristics.
1: And I think... In lieu of that, if education doesn't lay it back down, get parents bought into it, and mm-hmm. everyone kind of on the same page about ec- what expectations are, kids are doing that on social media. And their set of expectations for outcomes is so different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it does yeah. end mm-hmm. up evolving mm-hmm. into what the workforce is getting today, yeah. right? And right. which now yep. they're, we're grappling yep. with. So that the expectations are being set. And if they don't get reset mm-hmm. with some set of consequences, we could just you know be mired in this for quite mm-hmm. some time.
2: Mm-hmm. So we're in a high level conversation around sort of the, what, what we should be doing and resetting expectations mm-hmm. as districts. I think that's really important conversation. I want to take a real step back though to uh, something that Tim you wrote about, which is stop enabling mm-hmm. absenteeism. and Allison you said you should we well, said we should do both, right? We mm-hmm. should have both mm-hmm. have accountability for getting kids back in school and reimagine education at the same time or reimagine our relationships and the new paradigm of education what are these consequences? Like, so students not coming to school, what are they going to do? Like suspend them from school? Or are you going to take away the things that are the enticement to want to go to school? So like you you, you didn't go to school today, so you can't do the clubs and the sports that would actually draw you to come to school. Like, How, how are there consequences to this?
0: I think one of them is that the, you need to give feedback to the parents. So one of the key consequence points that we have is what we put on report cards. And if you don't tell families that, their child is not thriving as much as they would if they were in school every day. If you continue to give them report cards full of good grades and positive comments, which a lot of schools did during this time, then I think that's a form of accountability that we're not using. And parents care more about grades than anything else. So I think that's one. I do think, though, that there's nothing wrong with saying, if you're not coming to school, you can't participate in extracurriculars.
2: The very yeah. things that actually draw kids to school.
0: I, I'm okay with that. I think that the extracurriculars are, we do want kids to do that. But the moment that you say you can do those without doing school, why would I ever come to school again? Like, I feel like teenagers are pretty smart. And if you give them that option, how would they not take it? Yeah, That's kind of my the perfect world. I can Allison, play video I games. Disagree. I can do
2: my Google classroom. I can go to <laughs> yeah. sports, have my, my, my engagement that I needed. It's kind of a nice life if I, I could do all that. What Allison, do what do think? you think?
3: I only disagree because I serve all those students that are defiant. Yeah. So when you have you when you run a school for defiant students, you have to think more creatively. I don't buy the you have to come to school if school is really boring. Like mm-hmm. I can't force a kid to to do that. So to me, it's really how do we make school more interesting for our young adults? And I also think for us, our policy is not punitive. We, we really see it as an expectation, not a consequence. And so we are saying to our parents and our students, we expect you to be in school every single day. like, And if you're not, we're going to call home and ask why. We're not going to just do the automated system. Mm. So we're tracking it and we're asking why. And then when we ask the why, then we are starting to separate the students that really need help and the students that just need to come to school. Mm. And Frankly, we're seeing them come to school just by that small move, just by that small move, by saying, you know, mom, dad, your child needs to be here. Mm -hmm. And they're thankful that we're saying that to their child. You know, I had a student and a parent come up to us at the start of the school year, and I shared our new attendance policy, and the parents were thankful that we were setting this expectation. Mm -hmm. Their child had been out pretty much all year long, and with no valid reason. Is there something to be said by—could we be providing other
1: amenities that act as carrots? For example, it seems like private schools Mm. keep growing and growing and growing their mental wellness Mm -hmm. offerings. Are there just amenities that we should be thinking about adding to the school day and school opportunity that would actually lure students back and, you know, interest families? You know, you think about how many families can't find a mental health care provider, Mm -hmm. and if if there was one— that you could access if you could go to school, would that be valuable?
0: Yeah, I think for sure. I think all of that's under the banner of make school special and make it a great place to be. And I think we should, we should do that and continue to do it. And it's one of the things that hopefully the funding that has been around during the pandemic can sustain some of those things because right. I agree, they're really important. And they're one of the things that make it more appealing to be at school than to be at home.
3: And I would say a lot of students come to BDA just for that. They come for the counselors. They come for the mental health. We spend more of our budget on the student support side, not more. We spend, we prioritize student support in our budget, and it makes a difference. So what do you think about teachers? Are there
1: things that we should be doing for teachers to help, like, rebound and get us back to this thriving, interesting, collaborative sort of experience at schools? Have we put too much on them and not given them enough?
0: I'm worried about putting too much on teachers and making them feel like they are solely responsible for this because the decision about whether a child goes to school or not is overwhelmingly a parent decision. And I I think schools are doing a lot, and we've all been afraid Mm. to engage with the parent side of this. But the parents are the ones that set bedtimes. They're the ones that get kids out of bed in the morning. And when an absence happens, the overwhelming – like most common sequence is a child says, I don't want to go to school and the parent says, yes. So we have to either figure out why kids are saying they don't want to go to school or why the parents are saying yes if we don't want that to happen as often. So I think it's important to start there. There is one thing though, I think that we could empower teachers to do because they are very trusted by parents and your specific classroom teacher probably has more of a relationship with you as a parent than the school principal, especially at the elementary school level. We could empower them to give parents better guidance on when to keep their kids home. Mm. So for example, what is a fever and what is too sick to go to school? During COVID, anything was too sick to go to school because we didn't know what it was and we didn't want kids to to bring infection in there when there was so much vulnerability. But now that we're out of that, if you ask the average parent, how high of a temperature do you need to have to stay home? A lot of parents will say, well, it's supposed to be 98.6. So if it's 99, they have a fever, they're staying home. American Academy of Pediatrics would not agree with that. 99 and a half, they don't agree with that. 100, they don't agree with that. 100 and a half, don't agree with that. 101. So a fever that warrants keeping a child home from school is 101, especially for young kids. They burn very hot. No one knows that. Most teachers don't know that. Most parents think that 100 is a really high fever and that they shouldn't send their kids to school with that. But the pediatricians are saying, send them if there are no other, you know, uh, uh, important symptoms. So one thing I think that we could do is just empower teachers with a little bit of guidance, parent-teacher night, other things to say. We're trying to make sure that parents have clarity because you're not going to get in trouble if you send your 99 and a half degree child to our school. That's okay. Here's when to keep them home. Here's when to send them.
2: You're here first. So um, chronic absenteeism around our country is a hot topic. Everyone's talking about it, not sure exactly what to do, but everyone's concerned about this. Even the White House, even the Federal Department of Education is concerned about this. Should you be able to talk to the Secretary of Education for our great nation, what would you say to him and say, here's our recommendation for you to how to address chronic absenteeism around our country?
0: It's hard to imagine what you can do at the federal level at this point because it takes so long for policies that to trickle down. And I think one of the questions to address is – should there be any ongoing federal attention to this? Because it feels like this caught them by surprise. They were way behind this. They, they came out with something in August of 2023 about chronic absenteeism, mm-hmm. not in August of 2022 or August of 2021. And I think that they're they're getting a lot of criticism. And I think quite honestly, it's deserved. I think they are on this now and I uh, they're paying attention to it. It's much too late. Kids have missed an awful lot of school. And besides going on a lot of tours and putting out some statements, I don't think they've done very much.
2: Let me bring it down to the state level or to the local level. Allison, what advice would you have to our local education policy uh, officials and say, you know, even maybe even school committees, right, and say, here's what we should do about chronic absenteeism?
3: I, as a longtime educator, as a daughter of educators, would say invest in educators. I think we are not seeing teacher retention, I think we are not seeing folks stay in the profession for a long period of time, honing their craft, becoming really good at their craft, knowing all those teacher moves. So we saw that exodus of teachers. We're not seeing an influx of diverse teachers that reflect the population that they're serving. So invest there. I don't think there's Band-Aids. I think teachers need the space to take curriculum and make it creative and make it fun. I think... Focusing on standardized scores all the time loses that. We saw that pre-COVID where teachers are really feeling hamstrung by the need to, like, do X, Y, and Z to see their scores improve in their classrooms. And so all of those practices really drown out the creativity that educators really want to bring to their classroom. So I think shifting how we think—I'm always going to go back to teaching and learning—shifting how we are Training them, we were talking about that a long time ago. Our training programs, um, how we're recruiting, giving more freedom to schools.
2: How long uh, will it take us to solve this chronic absenteeism issue? I think it'll take like three more years. I think probably that's
0: it'll take that long for things to settle down. I bet each of the next three years will be a bit better. I'm not a good futurist, but that would be my guess. You
1: think it's that? I feel like that's so short. You think that it's that short because mm-hmm. now people are very aware. Yeah, like people probably at the principal level have been very aware.
0: Yeah, and Ross's question was a good one. I think at the state level, state leaders can make clear of schools, what do we need from you? And parents, what do we need from you? Because you can't put it all, schools cannot solve this on their own. So saying that all of a school's accountability or a lot of it is now gonna be based on solving chronic absenteeism. That's not a reasonable thing because they don't have total control over that. But I do think they can say, here's what we what we do expect. And for example, one of the things that schools can do is they have to pay more attention to teacher chronic absenteeism mm-hmm. because teachers are missing more school mm-hmm. than they've ever missed before. Mm-hmm. And when teachers miss school, kids miss school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That mm-hmm. also doesn't get a lot of attention or coverage, mm-hmm. but teachers are facing the same senses of disengagement. They mm-hmm. may also have kids that have to stay home yep. more often. Yep. That is something that you can address at the, at the district level. Why are we having teachers miss so many days and then i think be honest that on the other hand parents we need you we need your partnership you've got to get your kids in school so i think the main thing that that state leaders can do is to put the emphasis in the right place report these things transparently and hold people accountable for the actions that they can take
2: any 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 last uh words that you guys feel like you missed
0: i mean this topic is something where there aren't easy answers and the more you learn about it the more you you realize how much you still don't know. And so I think it it was great. I appreciate being part of it.
1: It's so complicated. Yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Tim Daly and Allison Remick. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep Dives. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. And if you're interested in what's happening in Boston public schools, subscribe to our other podcast, Last Night at School Committee, where we recap every Boston School Committee meeting. Have a great day.